Matthew 17, verses 1 through 5, page 694 in your pew Bible. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just there, just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish. I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Thanks, Jeff. I hope you uh, hold your place right there at uh, page 694 from the Pew Bible or on Matthew 17. A couple things I wanted to say uh, here at the beginning as we get into this portion of our service. One is, I just wanted to thank everybody who, who participated in Abby Halford's funeral this week. You know, we, we came here last Sunday morning. Not many of you know the Halford family. I said, their daughter has passed away. And um, I asked for your assistance. And it was amazing to me the way that you came through. Well, no, it wasn't so amazing to me. It's quite like you to do that. But the amount of food that was given for the family and for the reception afterward was striking. Like there was so much food, we didn't even know what to do with it all at the end because there was so much. Thank you so much for coming through in that way. For those who came down and helped, there were people who came on Monday and set everything up. There were people who came on Tuesday and set it things up again with all the food and everything, got everything orchestrated. There were numerous ladies, and I, and I might say, by the way, so many of our elders' wives were here participating in that. Thank you so much for all of that. I know it was such a blessing to the family because they told me so. And I just want to thank you for being so gracious and so willing to reach out. That's exactly the kind of thing that we need to do. Let me mention also that inside the bulletin, you will find a new list of Bible readings. For those of you who've been following through with the Bible readings that are in the bulletin, there's a new list there. I believe that day 16 is tomorrow. And so uh, please continue on that if you've been doing that. I want to mention that there's a Super Sunday today. And so uh, if you're here today and would like a meal afterwards, it is prepared for you. You don't have to bring anything. Just come down and eat with us. We'd be love to have, lo would love to have you do so. That would be fantastic. And then... I, you know, Greg and Diane specifically thanked us in the bulletin for praying for them while they were gone, but I just wanted to mention how impressed and pleased and um, how mature I think the clients officers are for the request of prayer that they made and then to come back and thank us for having prayed for them while they were gone. Well done, you two. I just am impressed and pleased and love you very much and good job while you're away. That's absolutely fantastic. Then, uh, this morning, I want to pray for Tunisia. Um, if you've been watching the news at all, you know that that nation is in absolute turmoil. Um, there's lots of reasons for that. But we had a young lady, uh, Steph Lazert, who's sitting over here and is a student at Alberta Bible College, was in Tunisia last summer learning Arabic. She spent the whole summer there, and she met with a group of Christians there who is one of the few groups of Christians within the country. 
And she was concerned this morning. She said, you know, those whom I love are under great peril right now because of all the events going on. And she asked us to pray. And so let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray, please. God, I know that there are very few of those who claim you in the country of Tunisia. And those, Father, who do claim you find themselves in a a persecuted, singular kind of state. There's not many. And when they meet together, they meet together in secret and they're just concerned all the time about what might happen. Steph had occasion to be with them and I know that she loves them and is concerned for them. And at a time like this when there's so much turmoil, we ask your special blessings upon those brothers and sisters of ours in that torn up country. Please, God, give them uh, safety, uh, peace. Uh, Most of all, give them continued faith in you. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Last week, uh, and over the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about the joy uh, that there is in Christ. I've been talking about the joy that we have in reading Scripture, talking about the passion that there is in Christ, the notion of love that we have for Jesus, and how that's such a blessing. And the fact is, is that we go through our study on the person of Jesus, like our banner says, walking anew with Jesus, and we're looking at numerous uh, items from the Gospels. I'm seeing things about Jesus, of course, that I've never seen before. Anybody who spends any time in the Gospels is going to see things about Jesus that they've never seen before. Things are going to be new for them. And this has been enjoyable and spiritually filling for me. And so when I was talking about passion last week for Christ and the joy that fills us in Jesus, it's the Gospel, reading the Gospel, that does that to me on so many occasions. And this morning is no different as we look at the story of the transfiguration. And there's things here uh, that I had never seen before as I think about the transfiguration. Like, I don't know if I've ever even thought really about what it means for Jesus to have been transfigured and what exactly that looked like. What did the word mean for Jesus to have been transfigured? Well, there's a word there that means changing, changing in appearance and changing in appearance in a positive way. And so Jesus has something different that he looks like that maybe he's never looked like before, at least not in the presence of human beings. He suddenly looks like that in front of them. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, why did this happen? Why did this happen in the life of Jesus? What did it mean for him? What did it mean for those around him? I don't think it happens because Moses and Elijah need to have a conference with Jesus, interestingly enough. I don't think Jesus needs to have things confirmed for himself. And so when it comes to talking about the benefit of the transfiguration, this event in Matthew 17, which seems just kind of mysterious to us, I don't think that it's just for the sake of Jesus that this happens. In fact, I would say it happens more likely for us. Now, we get a clue of this when Matthew tells us that it happens only six days after the previous events. That means that the previous events, namely the confession of Peter saying, you are the Christ, is still fresh in their minds. Not very often do the Gospels say something like, and this happened just three days hence or four days hence or six days hence. And so something there is significant about the fact that this is only six days from then. And I would say it's because Jesus is in fact responding to the confession of Peter. There is a connection between this story and the previous one. Do you remember the previous story last week? Who do you say that I am? 
What about you? Jesus says, after he's already asked the question, who do men say that I am? Well, you're somebody, Jesus, to those other people out there. But to us, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Interesting statement. Interesting statement, especially given all the things that happened to Peter later on in his life. And I'd say that there are a couple of connections between that claim on Peter's part and that story and what's happening right now with the transfiguration. First of all, do you know how long it took for Peter to go from the one who confesses Jesus and as one of the keepers of the keys of the kingdom to being a stumbling block? Now, he is, he's the one who says, you're the Christ. And then Jesus says, and you and others are going to keep basically the keys to the kingdom. And what you bind on earth will be bound. What you don't bind won't be bound. Do you know how long it takes for Peter to go from that kind of authority and power to get behind me, Satan? Three verses. Three verses is all it takes for that kind of change to take place. Which tells me that Peter didn't exactly stand as strong when he says, you are the Christ, as we would like him to stand. In fact, Jesus ends up having to rebuke him immediately, right after his confession. So I'm thinking that as Jesus begins to transfigure himself, before these apostles, that's somehow linked together with what's going on. And so this first connection between the stories, there is faith, there's belief on the part of Peter, but there's not much understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus wants to help with Peter's specific lack of understanding about who Jesus is. I think that's one reason for the transfiguration. Take him from one place to another and confirm what it is that you've already done. In, uh, in terms of confessing Christ. Now, the second connection has to do with Jesus illustrating, revealing fantastic things to those on whom he will depend. And that's because these people have the potential to greatly waver in their faith. Now, look back at chapter 16, verse 24 with me for a second. Then Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now what if... Jesus had said that to you. What if Jesus had said, you are going to have to take up your cross? Now, for us, we're used to that language. Jesus, you mean something symbolic by that. We're talking about a spiritual taking up of the cross. But I'd like to know whether or not the disciples thought that when Jesus said that to them. Because unlike us, this is before the cross. When he says to them, you're going to have to take, take up your cross and follow me. And he's already talked earlier about that, about being killed for his faith in God. 
I don't see how they can think anything other than the fact that Jesus is saying to them, you're going to die on a cross for my sake. I think that's what he has to be saying to them and how they would have to understand it. Now, as it turns out, that is exactly what happens for some of them. They end up dying for their faith in Jesus. And so when they hear Jesus say, you're going to have to take up your cross, can you imagine the confusion? On the one hand, he's Messiah, like we talked about last week. Everything is so wonderful. He's coming with this new era. God is going to establish his kingdom and everything will be made new. And yet, you're going to have to die in the process of getting ready for all of that. I can imagine some confusion. I remember as a kid sometimes because I was not a bully, but sometimes not all that nice, that myself, maybe if I was 10 years old and another fellow is 10 years old, we could go and take the ball of a kid who is four years old and play keep away. And some of you have enjoyed the experience of having been that one in the middle and had somebody playing keep away with you. Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember the feeling of being a little kid and something would happen where somebody's trying to keep something from you like that and you can't begin to touch it? You are simply unable. They're too big or they're too strong or they throw the ball too far or they're too fast and you can't do anything about it. And finally, this kid, after running around and trying to get it from the other one and trying to get it from the other one, he's never successful. What do they finally do? They give up. Of course they do. You can't win. And they would sit down, maybe, and because they're only four, maybe they're going to cry. But at the very least, they're going to be extremely frustrated because they're not at all getting what they want and what they bargained for. And I just wonder if the disciples weren't feeling a little bit like that. Not that Jesus is playing keep away here. He's trying to reveal himself to them. But that doesn't mean that the disciples get it. There is confession by Peter, but then a rebuke as if he's rebuking Satan, as if Jesus is rebuking Satan when he looks at Peter. There's possession of the keys, but then they have to take up their crosses. There are crosses to be taken up, but there is life to be found. There's the Father's glory and the angels to see, but some, are they're not even going to die before they see it. I think all of those messages are extremely confusing for the disciples. And I can imagine a great deal of frustration on their parts. And so the second connection between the confession story and the transfiguration looks like this. Jesus is trying to head off the frustration of the disciples that they have because of their lack of understanding. He doesn't want them to do exactly what Steve said, exactly what the four-year-old is going to do. The four-year-old is going to give up, and I'm afraid that the disciples might be tempted to do so also. And wouldn't you? Wouldn't you at least be a little bit tempted you are going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And we don't know where all of that is going to end up for you. And this leads me to uh, think about the fact that there are some things here that are constructive for us as well. Because sometimes I think that we find ourselves as confused and frustrated as the disciples. 
Has anybody here ever had anything go haywire for them in life, even after having become Christian? Has anybody here ever felt as though the life that they were trying to live in the Lord was not bringing them all the benefits and all the satisfaction that they thought might have come the day that they put on the Lord? Of course. Haven't you ever felt as though, and we talked about this just in the last couple of weeks, haven't you ever felt as though you wanted to be part of a church that was just progressing beyond all expectations? Where you never had to look and say, God, what is it exactly that you're trying to do among us? How come we kind of seem to spin our wheels for years at a time, Lord? I'm not really getting that. There are times, I think, when Christians ask those kinds of questions. And so it makes total sense to me, as I think about the transfiguration, that there are some things there that I might learn that will be of blessing to my life. And here, I think, is what we can learn. First, the Father and Son are filled with grace. This is a grace-filled event in the life of Jesus, giving us strength. Now you think about this. Jesus had just said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Sixty days later, he goes and he grabs Peter's special along with James and John and he takes him up on a mountain and he shows himself in a transfigured way specifically to Peter. Why does he do that? Isn't Peter the one who said, no, you're not going to die on a cross. We're not going to have that, Jesus. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Why does he now take him up on the mountain? Isn't he ready, finally, to give up on this one and say, no more, Peter? And so this is an act of grace. And aren't you blessed that God does the same thing with you? Like, aren't you blessed that at the times when you fail, that God keeps taking you back? Aren't you glad that there are times when you aren't what God wants you to be, that you don't see clearly, that your heart isn't really His, but He keeps showing Himself to you? He keeps calling it out of you, drawing out of you the opportunities for you to be what God wants you to be. He does not leave you. Even if you look at times like you're going to leave Him, He doesn't leave you. And I'm so grateful that God is one who loves us, shows Himself to us, that the Father and Son are so filled with grace that even after you get behind me, Satan, he takes Peter back and in fact will take us too. Second thing, when our confirmed, intense spiritual experience of Jesus allows us to come, overcome doubts and fears and brings out in us joy, the passion and desire to act, we first need to listen. This is what happens for the disciples. They see Jesus transfigured, Peter, James, and John. And how do they respond? Well, no doubt with excitement, but what does Peter specifically say in light of this wonderful appearance of Moses and Elijah? What does he say? Let me build some booths for you then, Jesus. And I think it's so interesting that Peter is ready to jump in because of his excitement, 
The kingdom has become real for him. He's seen something in Jesus that he's never seen before. And he's all excited and says, let me build some little shacks for you and Moses and Elijah to live in. Now that doesn't strike me as a deep, deep response on the part of my brother there. I'm wondering how he really has taken in this event and whether or not he understands it. And so immediately following, and in fact right in the middle of Peter's statement about needing to build his booze, what does God do? He stops him. He interrupts him. While Peter is still talking and saying, I want to build some booths for you, all of a sudden a voice comes out of the heavens. And you know the voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, the text says. And the message is for those who, even in their excitement and joy, See God working among us. It is time right then to stop and to listen. One of the great blessings that our church has experienced recently is our elders getting excited about what's happening among us, especially with respect to our vision. Our, our mission statement comes directly out of the work that people have done here in thinking and exploring ways in which we might be what God wants us to be. But one of the things that I absolutely love about our elders is that while they're thinking and while they're getting ready to make that kind of decision, they stop and pray. And they have tried so hard to discern what it is that God wants our church to be. And I think I've heard from them and I've learned from them the truth about the need to just stop. Even in your joy and your excitement about what God is doing, to stop and to listen and allow God at that point to work. The third thing that I think we need to get out of this is this. As long as our life and mission continue, we have a story to tell. It's interesting that after this event, Jesus specifically says to the disciples, I don't want you to go tell anybody about this. Now he says that I think because he doesn't want them to come and try and make him king too early. He wants to put the brakes on a little bit about how people might be responding to Jesus. And so he says, don't tell them about this. If people hear that I've been transfigured and you saw Moses and Elijah, oh, that could lead to my early demise. And so he kind of tells them to be quiet and to put the brakes on. But, he also says there is a time coming when I'm raised from the dead, and then you will tell. And that's exactly how it is with us. We have a life, and we have a mission in God that allows us, in response to God showing himself to us, it allows us to tell the story. And we need to tell the story. By God's grace, we have been afforded a glimpse into the future of our world with Jesus. We know where the world is headed and what it needs. We know what can end the frustration and the fears of those around us. God has graced us with mission and a role in his kingdom. 
we have opportunity to tell the world what we've seen and what we've experienced in Christ. And he's revealed himself to us and in our life together as a church, we can have impact in our world. In other words, there's a sense in which we've received the transfiguration. I've never seen Jesus on a mountain in white and garb, but I've seen Jesus live in you. And because I've seen Jesus live in you, and I've seen Jesus live in my own life, I have a story to tell. It's exactly what Jesus says to them. When I'm risen from the dead, you'll have a story to tell. Then you can talk about it. And now, in our day and in our age, I have seen him alive. And because I've seen him alive, I have a story to tell. I can talk about who Jesus is against a world that so badly needs to know who Jesus is. We have that privilege. We have that blessing. The other day, we had a chance to make an impact. I can't think of many things that are more important than giving hope to a family that has just lost a child. We had a chance to show the love of Christ. We had a chance to show the personality of Christ. We had a chance to give comfort and encouragement. And so again, when I put out the call to people and said, hey, let's help the Halfords, can we help out? The, fr- the response was, quite frankly, a bit overwhelming. Today we say things like, it blew me away! And it did. There were so many people who stepped up to serve. So many people who were willing to bring food here. There were so many people who gave their time and their effort. And there are so few of you who actually know the Halfords. But you helped out. And in that simple act... For those of you who helped, the story was told. Testimony was given concerning who Jesus is and what we have seen of him. It's like he has been transfigured and we've experienced Jesus and the message goes out because we've experienced him. And so seeds of the kingdom were sown on Tuesday. There were so many people here, about the same crowd as what there is now, maybe a little less. And I would guess that in that crowd, at least of the ones I knew from our congregation, there couldn't have been more than 10%. It was a largely unchurched crowd, certainly with respect to our church. And yet the message went out. An impact for Christ was made. The kingdom was felt. The food was like manna from heaven. It just kept coming. And so the story was told. Testimony was given. Seeds of the kingdom were sown. And we need to keep looking for those opportunities to tell the story by impacting the lives of those around us. Now, this is really cool. Think about this. We had this significant impact, I think, on the lives of those people as they came here on Tuesday and received comfort and blessing from our church family in response to their losing of a child. But where did that start? It didn't really start with me just making an announcement last Sunday. Where it really started was with Jordan and Carrie in the hospital making contact with Kevin and Jennifer because their daughter, Abby, was 
eventually going to pass away. She had the same disease as Drew. Did you, can you imagine Jordan and Carrie being in the hospital, thinking about their own son and all the things that were eventually going to happen with Drew, and in the middle of that, they're talking to Kevin and Jennifer about Jesus. They're sowing seeds. They're letting the message go forth. They're talking about the comfort that they themselves have received and how that comfort gets passed on because of what Jesus has meant to them. They were open. They recognized that the story needed to be told in light of what they had experienced in Jesus themselves because Jesus had been their comforter. And he had given his grace to them. And because they had received his comfort and his grace, they were able, even in their darkest hour, to pass on the message of light to the Halfords. And that's what happens, church, when you see Jesus. It doesn't have to be a bodily transfiguration. It has to be Christ living in your life. And when he is in our hearts and so much a part of who we are, he will flow out of what we have with him. And the world will be impacted. Now, there are so many times in our lives when we have occasion for experience of seeing the transcended Christ to impact us in our interaction with other people. And I praise the Lord that Jordan and Carrie took opportunity. All of us need to seize those chances for those times when Jesus says to us, when you know that I've risen from the dead, go tell the story. And he has indeed been raised. And there's a story for us to tell. Let's pray. Oh God, you have shown yourself to us in countless ways over and over again. And for that we praise and we thank you. And there are those times, God, when we have been so aware of who you are that your story has filled us and we've been able to tell your story, tell the good news about Jesus to others. And I thank you and praise you for that too. And Father, all I ask is that you, that you help that message to live in our hearts. Transform us. We, we say, you are the Christ. But sometimes, God, it's so appropriate for you to say to us, get behind me, Satan. And so I pray that you would just use the message of who you are and our vision for who you are to transform our hearts and make us all you want us to be with respect to the example we present to the world of you. Father, we pray you'd ready the world for the impact that we can have in their lives. Thank you, Jesus, for using us. Thank you for making it possible for us to be your children. Give us opportunities to change the world. It's through Christ that we pray. 
Amen.